and we start reading from verse 20, and that's Matthew chapter 11, page 9, 7, 6. Matthew writes, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Please uh, do have a seat, musicians. We're going to look now at uh, Matthew 11. And it is, as I said, a sober passage. We're continuing our series, uh, Knowing God. And we've looked at his knowability, the fact that God has revealed himself um, because a computer crashed. Um, this is all we have for PowerPoint. So Al is the most relaxed you've ever seen him in front of a computer. Hi, Al. So he's relieved this morning. Um, but this morning, having looked at God's knowability, um, understanding his character to the next step, we come to what is very, very confrontational in our understanding of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And that's in Matthew chapter 11, where we see that God is a God of justice. And if he's God of justice, then there will be a day of judgment. And I think there are very few, if any, more unpalatable topics to think about today. But let's get our context. Matthew 11 is a response to John the Baptist's question. You can see that from Matthew 11, verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 3, John the Baptist says... How do we know you are who you say you are? Are you the Messiah is another way to paraphrase. And what is fascinating, if we had time to read the whole chapter, is just how Jesus responds. Jesus could have responded with, well, yes, I am the Messiah. But he doesn't. When you think Jesus could sugarcoat the message, when you think Jesus could in some way make it more palatable, Jesus, Jesus states again his credentials. He outlines his character, his priorities, his purposes, and it is so confrontational. There's this mixture of uh, like uh, oil nestling on the top of the sea. No mixture, no confusion. Jesus is compassionate. He's the compassionate king, but he's the Lord God Almighty who we will stand before. He is judge. Look at how he expresses his character. Jesus, in verses 28 to 29 of Matthew 11, can be so, it's such melt-in-your-mouth sweetness. 
Look at what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We want that. If there's going to be a bumper sticker, that could be a good one. That's something that you could have on your wall as a piece of uh, celebratory wall art. We love that. But look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Woe to you. Woe to you. And then he starts talking about cities who have not repented to his uh, ministry and to his miracles and to his word and to the, his ministry expressing what the kingdom of God is and about a sure and certain future that you can have in Jesus. And they've not responded. And so Jesus says, woe. And that's oil and water. The tenderness of Jesus and the striking confrontational nature of, con- of Jesus' character and his words. Woe to you. The last time I heard the word woe was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. As uh, they kind of did air guitar. There's a few people in their 30s that are smiling at this point. If you're not sure what it is, ask them. It's a very strange film. But woe is a serious word. It's not something you do and then say excellent and do air guitar. Woe means curse. And this is Jesus at his most somber, at his most striking. And I'm sure some of us would wish that this passage was not in the Bible. Here is Jesus standing in judgment over two cities who have not responded to the gospel. And he says, you will be cursed. Woe to you. Come to me, verse 28, all you who are weary and burdened because I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the same Jesus who says, verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. And I'm sure with these two topics of God's love that we enjoy and accept, but the justice and judgment of God, we have a great problem. How can these two mix? Do they mix? They seem polar opposite. Isn't it either the God of the Old Testament who's a God of wrath, the God of new who's a God of love? People often think in that way. There are lots of people that struggle with this issue of hell, and if you don't, can I suggest that you perhaps never grasp the severity of what the Bible says? We should struggle with it. But when we come to the justice and judgment and the reality of eternal hell, we need to either come under the authority of Scripture or we stand above it and we pick out the bits that we like. It's easy to say, isn't it? If God is a God of love, he doesn't send people to hell. If God is a God of judgment, he can't be a God of love. And it is very difficult to reconcile those two things. But can I say to you, the God who is a God of justice... His justice comes out of his goodness, out of his character. And Jesus, who is a God of love, that same truth comes out of his character. He's a God of goodness. Justice and love come out of the same source, the goodness of the character of our God. God is a just judge because he is good. He's fair. He knows all. That's a scary reality, but also a timeless truth. But he's also a saviour and a rescuer. That's another expression of his goodness. Justice and love do not... Uh, pull each other apart, but they are intertwined in the character and the goodness of God. He's the rest giver, you see. Without the justice of God, Jesus cannot offer, verse 28 and 29, this, this promise of rest. How is that possible? We'll think about that in a moment. Jesus cannot be the rest giver unless Jesus is also the judge, says the gospel. And I want us to think about the reality of the judgment, the basis of it, 
and then a way of escape. The reality, the basis, and the way of escape. Let's take a look at it. First of all, this passage teaches us the sober truth about the reality of a divine judgment, a judgment to come from the hands of Almighty God. Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities, to curse them. Woe to you. Now let's take a minute and think culturally. The whole idea of judgment, judgment from God, is, is just so unpalatable and it's widely rejected outside of the church and sadly within great swathes of the church as well. There are many people who won't reject the idea of God, a higher being, a force, a power, fill in the blanks. But their understanding of God is one who will not uh, administer justice or judgment. So you have a hybrid God, a God of our own making. They reject the idea of God who's looking down at us, who's weighing like Lady Justice on top of uh, the Old Bailey in London. That's rejected, that's unpalatable, that's untrue. It's uh, expressed in modern thinking in these ways. Woody Allen said, the heart wants what the heart wants. It just happens. If, if I want it, I can go and get it. And if the heart wants what the heart wants and there's no higher authority than my heart or your heart, see what he's saying? If I want it, I can go and get it. The heart wants what the heart wants. Or there's another line of thinking. When we die, we go into the light, all of us. There's no judgment. There's no heaven or hell. John Lennon was right. We go into the light. We're not sure what the future brings, but God will not be there. It's just a nothingness, a void. And the Bible says neither of those are true. If the heart wants what the heart wants, then I can decide what's right and wrong. I can decide what pleasure is. I'm accountable to, to myself and no one else. But let alone there be a God of the Bible who has authority, has created to decide what's right or wrong or express what's right or wrong. The Bible is an old and archaic and a, a book that can just be put next to fairy tales. But here's the problem. I think when you really press people, that is not acceptable intellectually or emotionally. It's not acceptable emotionally or intellectually. What do I mean? I love those old westerns when there's absolute havoc. It normally takes, you know, the good guy gets shot. And then after 40 minutes of absolute carnage, and the cry goes out, is there anybody with a gun? Is there anyone with a badge with five points on it who can come into town and save the day? And after about an hour, in comes the sheriff, kills all the bad boys and girls, well, not girls, kills all the baddies, and he brings justice and rule, and you say, hurrah! Um, perhaps that's a Shakespeare. But you get the point. I love those films where justice comes, normally in the form of someone coming in on a donkey's great shot. There's been some killing today, and I'm going to do it. Those kind of great lines from the westerns. I get so frustrated when the villain gets off on a technicality, don't you? We're always behind the times, Joe and I. We're now into line of duty, apparently. Don't give us any spoilers. We're behind the times. 9.6 million people watched a line of duty finale last week. Everybody loves it when there's, a, there's corruption and it's sorted out. But don't ask policemen because apparently it's all fabricated and not true. It's not as bad as that. But you get the point. We get so frustrated when justice is not bought. We get so frustrated when villains get away with it. We so rejoice when justice is bought because emotionally we want it. Now, where does that desire come from? That hatred of the baddies getting off, big corporations not paying enough tax, the small guy getting punished, the big guy getting away. Because in our hearts, there's that kernel of truth that we want to suppress, but we can't. We know there will be a day of judgment. We long for justice. And the Bible describes God as part of his goodness, as a God of love and a God of justice and judgment. 
Think of it like this. If you had a great job where you're responsible for resources, whether it's people or money, at some point in your year, you will have an audit. The auditors come in and you are responsible for the time you've spent, for the resources that are under your care, whether that's people or money, and everything is exposed. The books are there. And you say, no, you're absolutely fine. No, there's tax to pay. You've underpaid. Here's a reward. This never happens. You've uh, underpaid. We're going to give you back. Or you've overpaid. We're going to give you some money back. That never happens. But do you get the point? We all live in a desire for justice. And as a part of God's goodness, there will be justice. Another word for justice or judgment is audit. And the Bible describes God as all-knowing, all-seeing, all-loving, and he has everything exposed before him. There is a justice that is higher than our heart. Woody Allen was way wrong. There's a bar before which I will stand and you will stand. And really it's silly to think otherwise. It's emotionally and intellectually inconsistent to think otherwise. Because we long for justice. And the Bible says, as Jesus says in verse 20 and 21, Woe to you. Jesus is not floating above the ground. He does not have perfect hair. He is a God of authority. And verse 20, 21 begins to explain that he's a God of justice. It's the first thing. It's the reality of judgment. Secondly, it's the basis of divine judgment. Where's the basis? If justice is going to happen, if judgment will happen, why? Look at verse 23. Jesus says something quite striking. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now Sodom is a postcode that you do not want to own in the Bible. It's there in the Genesis 18 and 19 where God um, famously and infamously judges a city for its wickedness, for its sexual licentiousness. We may know that for its sexual immorality. But it's also there in Ezekiel 16, where God says, Now this sister of your Sodom, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty, they were arrogant. Therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. So it's sexual issues, but it's also they didn't care for the poor and the needy. But Jesus goes further, verse 23 and 24. Sodom, you see, was based and judged on the basis of the law was judged on the standard that God said about purity and they rejected and they stomped all over it. But Jesus in verse 23 and 24 says this, Capernaum had more revelation. Sodom was judged under the righteous standard of God's law, but they did not have Jesus walking through their streets. They did not have God walking on earth. They did not see and hear and understand something God's power and authority through his miraculous works and deeds. But Capernaum had more. Capernaum had me to deal with. And still they refused to follow God's standards. One of the reasons we were glad to get out of the Sermon on the Mount earlier in the years because it was so confrontational. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus every time took an issue and says, this is what it says, you've heard it said, but I. Remember that pattern? Like a drumbeat. You've heard it said, Moses said, but I. He takes the Old Testament law and expounds it, he extends its implications. Here's an example. Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you, you shouldn't even hate your neighbour. 
You shouldn't resent someone. You shouldn't ignore them. You shouldn't look through them. Remember that? You've heard it said, thou shalt not steal. I say you shouldn't even envy what someone else has. You shouldn't even be discontented by what you have if someone has more. You should be grateful for what you've received. Jesus takes the Old Testament law and he expands it. And when you listen to his teaching that says, don't just kill someone but love. Don't even resent someone but care. Don't just steal, not steal. Don't ever be discontent. Be generous, be kind, be pure, be just. If you say something, do it. When you hear Jesus' words, they're so confrontational because they explain the standard of God, the righteousness of his character. We say in one heartbeat, this is exactly the way the world should be. I wish I was this person. I wish my neighbour was this person and treated me this way. I wish my boss was kind to me and didn't look through me or ignore me after a hard day's work. When you hear Jesus' words, two things happen. One is, I'd love to live in a world like that, but they kind of chop you off at the knees because you recognise that you don't meet his standards. The very instant you admire what Jesus tells you, you recognise you don't meet the grade. You feel judged. You think, this is impossible. There's no way I could do that. And Jesus chops you right off at the knees and you haven't literally got a leg to stand on. Because we know when we are confronted with the standard of God, God's justice, God's record, there is a righteousness that we cannot meet. There's something higher than your heart, Woody Allen. We're not even living up to our own standard, let alone to God's standards. We stand condemned. We know we deserve justice, but we long for mercy. Friends, the way you really understand the Jesus of the Bible, remember I said to the Rosebury girls a week ago, is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? The same question is to us. The way you understand the Jesus of the Bible, that you've been confronted with his character, his goodness, his authority, his sovereignty, is that this topic of justice and judgment goes from being an intellectual understanding to being real to you. There's an awareness about a justice. There's an awareness of a righteousness that we don't have or own, that we can't uh, attend to. It presses upon us, which is why the Sermon on the Mount was so weighty. You realise you've got no claim on God at all, no reason, no merit to ask for his love, which is why verse 28 is so striking. Here is Jesus who's condemned, who said, here's a worked example for you, Forget Sodom for the moment, they were bad enough. But I've walked through these cities, I've pointed them to a faith possible uh, with God through my righteousness. I've pointed them to their insufficiently, but they've not repented, they've refused. And then Jesus says, come to me, verse 28, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is the Jesus who's just said, no one turned no one repented. It's going to be unbearable. They will receive my judgment in full. But for you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, a yoke is this kind of wooden-shaped implement that carpenters would fashion, and it would be given to a farmer and put upon a beast of burden be put upon uh, an animal who would uh, pull a plough, be put upon an oxen on their back. And look at what Jesus says, verse 29, learn from me, 
Learn from me and I will give you rest. The more I learn about what you have said should be, the worse I feel. But Jesus doesn't just say you need to learn from me like a Muslim would learn from Allah. He says, learn about me. Take me upon yourself. Understand who I've said that I am, not just who you think you should be. It's not about you, it's about me. Take me upon you. Jesus does talk about us in this passage. If you don't turn, if you don't repent, there is the awful prospect of God's judgment. And so Jesus, at the same time of giving the bad news, gives the wonderful news of the gospel. He says, come to me, there's a way out. There's a rescue mission. He's not talking about us, he's talking about himself. He says, I am the judge. I have appointed authority. I will return again to judge the living and the dead, says the Bible. And that's a fearful thing. I am the judge, says Jesus, but I am the judge who was judged so that I can be both just and justifier for anyone who believes in me, anyone who turns, anyone who repents. So that on the cross, the gospel says, the wrath of God, the settled, measured punishment for our sin was taken by Jesus, the Son of God. The wrath of God, but also the love of God, meet like a rope entwined together. God's justice and his compassion his mercy and his love combined together, perfectly coinciding, and his grace brilliantly shines forth like a lighthouse on a dark night. It's the wrath of God and the glory of God, the grace of God. And when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago on Good Friday, what happened? God was satisfied perfectly, sufficiently, once and for all time. His justice was meted out on his son. He was crushed. The Father rained out his just punishment. Why? For the satisfaction of his glory. And so, verse 28 and 29, so we could experience rest. It's the promise of the gospel. God's justice came down on Jesus, the innocent one. The rescue mission had almost come to an end. It's the justice of God meted out on the Son of God, who is the judge, but also the justifier. But it's also Jesus dying on the cross is the perfect expression of the love of God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn not just what I've said about who you ought to be. Learn about what I've done for you. Learn about who I've been for you. Learn about the future that I've achieved for you. And when you take that in, there's a huge contrast between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Strive for more. Understand more. Stand outside Epsom Station more often. Give more literature away and you will work your way to heaven. And Christianity says, no, rest. See what Jesus has done. See what Jesus has achieved. Rest in his finished work. You've got no working to do. You've got confident, sure and certain hope in the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ achieved. It's all done. The price is all paid. It's all been achieved. Rest. And see that Jesus has done it all for you. No other religion can say that. And that's why Christians should be able to say amen. Because it's not just about justice. It's the gospel and it's about rest. Nothing else to achieve. Jesus has done it all. And in sure and certain hope, we go out and tell the great news of the gospel to the world. Until you understand that, that God really is judge that no one will get away with anything, that there is a day of accounting, that everyone will be held accountable, 
until you understand that reality, the cross will not be precious to you. But if you've never understood that reality, how can you escape? Look at verse 20. It all comes down to this. Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida. What did they fail to do? The word's there twice. Verse 20 and also into verse 21. It says repent. They failed to repent. They failed to turn. They failed to recognize Jesus for who he was and respond appropriately to turn away from themselves and to him. And that's what I want to think about finally. This passage also teaches us just the only way to escape the judgment of God comes through repentance, comes through turning. Do you know what repentance actually means? It does mean turning, turning from one direction to another. But a repentant person begins to see, begins, it's a journey, it's a process. A repentant person begins to see their whole working philosophy for their life has been misfounded, it's been built on the wrong foundation. There's a man called Nathan Cole, I've used this before, he heard a Whitfield sermon a few centuries ago. He was a Connecticut farmer, and he says this, My hearing Mr. Whitfield preach gave me a heart wound. My old foundations were broken up, and I saw my righteousness could not save me. Here's a man who was listening to an open-air preacher, and the Spirit of God struck him to the heart. He came with a big jackhammer, like the workmen do, out on the road. And it broke up his foundation, thinking that he was good enough, thinking that he had worked hard enough, that he was respectable enough, that he was kind enough, that he could make the grade of God's ultimate standard. And he was cut to the heart, and he began to see who Jesus was, and he began to turn to him. He said, I saw my righteousness couldn't save me. He started to repent, and he grew in understanding about who Jesus was. Repentance can happen today. Repentance can happen this morning as you begin to think more about who Jesus is, as you begin to get closer to his claims and his authority. Who was this man? He was the son of man, which means he's the judge. He's the son of God, but he's also our saviour, says the gospel. We've sung about it already. When you see who Jesus is, the seriousness of sin begins to pop out, begins to weigh upon you. Jesus is your saviour, but he's also your judge. Those two realities come closer to you. But notice what Jesus says. I want you to see that I'm judge. I want you to turn in repentance. Why? Verse 28, 29. Because I want to give you rest. That's what the whole Bible's about. God achieving for us what we can never achieve ourselves. I don't want you to get more moral. I don't want you to give more money. I don't want you to go to certain places. I don't want you to get more religious. I want to give you rest, says Jesus. And I want you to know me. And I want you to enjoy knowing me. And I want you to turn to me. Exchange your self-confidence, your self-reliance, your self-sufficiency, your self-trust. See the weakness of that. Take the jackhammer to that. And cling to Jesus, says the gospel. He's our only hope, not Luke Skywalker. I'm your judge, says Jesus. But I'm also your saviour. Do you want that kind of rest? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.